Radio is the most efficient tool for providing information to empower communities. And increasingly, it's the only tool if a flood or a fire hits you. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reesmanel, and I'm one of your hosts and producers. Eric Klein here, other host and producer of Radio Survivor. Hello, everybody. Hello. Uh, glad to be back. Took a week off, taking some weeks off here and there. So glad to know the podcast is ably within your hands and Jennifer's hands. We had so much fun. Matthew's hands. Yeah, this is another good show. Appreciate that. Appreciate everyone tuning in and downloading or streaming the show this week. We've got some interesting stuff. Uh, Eric, you've got an interview with a real, he's a real community radio doer. He's a, he's a real man of action yeah, in community uh, radio. Jim Ellinger joined us from uh, Austin Airwaves is the name of his organization. And I, I reached out to him because he is going to be speaking at the Grassroots Radio Conference. Of course, that's why uh, Jennifer is not with us today on this episode of the podcast because she is also heading out there uh, probably as she, as we speak. Yes, probably, I believe she's on the road. She's it is happening or- <laughs> this weekend as we record, so it will be in the past when the uh, show drops, but it's this uh, Yeah, I hope weekend. everyone had a wonderful Grassroots Radio Conference. October 7th through 10th, but we did talk about it uh, two shows ago. And, and Jennifer, last week as well, yeah. And last Jennifer week, and, and Jennifer bring, bring, be, will be bringing us back some reportage as well. And this is a uh, conference for community radio stations. It's uh, really, it's truly grassroots, so there's no like central organizing group. There's no executive chairman or board director. Uh, station just sort of collaborate over email lists and decide who will host the conference each year. Yeah, and so Jim Jim Ellinger is going to be giving a talk at the Grassroots Radio Conference on Community Radio, an International Perspective. I believe I got the title right. If I didn't, that is what it's about. It's about, uh, you know, he has experience. He's gone overseas to help train and to help build sometimes uh, community radio stations all over the world. And so we're going to hear that a little later on in the podcast. First, we'll have a little bit of uh, news and follow-up from some friends of Radio Survivors and stories that we've been following. Uh, First up, we heard from the Portland Radio Project. Ah, yes. We talked to the Portland Radio Project many, many, many weeks ago. Uh, About a year ago or so. Ooh, well, it'll be in the show notes. I'm going to guess it was like uh, episode number 23. Something like that, yes. Uh, so it is a uh, community radio station, new low-power FM station here in Portland, Oregon, um, that's taking kind of an interesting approach to doing community radio, um, very music-focused, and uh, but trying to really mix in its public affairs mission yeah. with that, sort of, uh, so rather than having strict, uh, you know, some music program, public affairs programming, it's trying to mix in profiles of nonprofits and things like that yeah, what with they, its music. What they do, and it's very old school, and that was how we focused on them when we covered them uh, on Radio Survivor. Check the show notes again. What they do is, uh, they come from they come from commercial radio. Uh, the organizers, yeah. The organizers of the Portland Radio Project uh, had jobs in, in, in commercial radio back when it was a uh, public service, uh, was, was, a, was part of the values of even, even regular old uh, music, uh, rock, commercial radio. Yeah, when, you, when you're like, your rock station had a news director. Yeah, yeah, which is, which is uh, uh, sadly uh, gone from this earth. Right, the that 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 notion at all, and so here's here's a um, and this is one of the ideas about low power FM that we so enjoy, and the diversity that it brings is that here's an idea 
that um, was gone too soon from the from the radio landscape. The idea that that a music station could also serve the public interest and do good in the in the community. And so, what the Portland Radio Project does is uh, they send out their producers to talk with and interview um, local nonprofits once a week, and then uh, turn those interviews around into I think about seven minute segments that air throughout the throughout the day on the Portland Radio Project. Uh, you know, basically shining a light on what's going on in this community as far as uh, the work of these nonprofits. And uh, yeah, that was that was fun to, yeah. to hang out with them and to meet them last year. And so they had started out as an online-only station and then were able to file for a uh, low-power FM license in the 2013 window. Right. Again, I guess we're, we might be talking too much about the the content of that last episode, but they filed for that low power FM because you met with them and told them that it was important. Like well, that was one of your first radio related meetings having moved to Portland. And again, I, I, I'm not sure I can take credit. They did all the work uh, for that. And they ended but they up gave you credit. That's okay. why I well, think it's very, fair to, to say, because they, they say that if it wasn't for meeting with Paul and talking about uh, their radio options, they would not have bothered to have gotten excited about the low power FM opportunity. They were planning on being an online only station. Mm-hmm. And I think you really lit the fire. Mm-hmm. Of course, you didn't do any of the work, but I you did lit the none fire. Of the work. You lit that fire under them so that they could get take advantage of the low power FM opportunity, which was a uh, um limited. Yeah, limited time exactly. only. Very limited time only. So they eventually uh, signed a, a construction permit and then license and it did to share the frequency. Uh, this is something which happens in many communities where you have many folks who are competing for a single frequency. Um, when it comes down to two or three fairly equally qualified groups, um, they have the option to, or sometimes they're forced to, but mostly have the option to go into a, a timeshare situation. Yeah, another one of your favorite uh, ideas about the low power FM moment that we're in. Yeah, because I like that because one, because it, it turns competitors into collaborators. Right. Instead of instead of a zero sum game it's, where either right. I get a radio station or you don't. Now, in the case when you know we've had some cases like in Los Angeles where there were like thirty some different groups competing for one frequency, it's tough for that not to be a zero-sum game. And you can't really – it's hard to split the podcast that many ways. And we're really grateful to groups like Common Frequency, uh, which is a nonprofit group that helps at Low Power FMs, which went down the ground and worked with the FCC to help find slight modifications to applications so that they actually got more than one station on the air. So mm-hmm. they said, if you just, if you'd be willing to move your station a few degrees north and a few degrees west and move over to this frequency, we can probably find you right. a slot and, weren't in, there, and such. Weren't there also opportunities for different uh, groups to, to decide that they actually had enough in common that they would just, they would just share the station without it being split? Without I mean, the baby I mean that that would be. I mean, uh, not 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 quite. No. So what can happen is that a group. I mean, groups could decide to collaborate, but in terms of the license being held, it can only be held by a single nonprofit, mm-hmm. and they can only hold one license. So if two groups decide to collaborate in that way, that would be fine. But one of them, from the standpoint of the FCC, would have to say, "No, we're we're right. out. This is we're this is not our license." But collaborations are possible. But I'd- but but yeah, absolutely. And so the license with the timeshare, usually groups say, "Okay, a very typical timeshare is." is one group will take from midnight to noon, another group takes from noon to midnight. Right, which is what happened 
in Portland. Yeah, so Portland Radio Project was sharing it with with uh, a group called the Q Center, uh, which is a center which focuses on the needs of the LGBTQ community um, here in in Portland, and they're they're operating a station called Wild Planet. But uh, we just learned from Portland Radio Project that uh, they will actually be taking over the frequency full time. Right. They'll be moving to 24 hours a day at 99.1 FM. Um, you know, it appears that uh, at this point, um, being able to operate even a 12 hour a day station may have been uh, more than the Q Center was ready to handle. You know, and and that's that's not unusual, right? Because if you think about the way that this happens with low power FM. Is that you go, you know, you get the resources together to put in an application. It requires some engineering help. You know, it's easier than a full power station, but it requires some engineering help, requires some legal help. It's a big process. Yeah. And then you wait, right? And you don't know if you're going to get that that station, right? Years and, and, pass. And it's, yeah, a year or two years uh, pass. And, you know, there may be follow up and it may turn, and it may turn out that even if you are able to get it, you'll have to be in a timeshare arrangement or there's other arrangements to be made. And so for a lot of groups, it becomes difficult to sort of know where to place operating a radio station sure. into your budgeting, but, into your fundraising, into your management, and to and to know whether, you know, I think it's waiting I think, for that letter to come in the mail. I think we can share with the listeners that what's going on right now is that Paul and I both over the many of the last months, although not every week, of course, have reached out to the Q Center to try to find out um, how they're approaching their work with, with radio and because we were not aware of how they were doing it or who was doing it. Mm -hmm. And it was difficult to uh, have any of our uh, polite inquiries answered. No one, no one was really there to tell us what was going on. <laughs> yeah, so I think we, I, I had one guessing. query early on answered, but I was unable to get any follow up. Um, yeah, yeah, and it, around the time that I visited Portland Radio Project, I became very interested in how the Q Center was going to approach their half mm-hmm. of this radio station and tried to find out, but uh, it it didn't seem like there they. Um, had the bandwidth, yeah, as they and, say. and that's not unusual. Yeah. And that's, I mean, so that is, it's, it's sort of one advantage of low power FM is that groups that might not otherwise be at all involved in broadcasting have the opportunity to be involved in broadcasting. With the problem being that sometimes it's difficult to plan for that. It's difficult to know all the resources and what it will take. Radio to is pull so off. much work. Communication is so much work. Yeah. I mean, this is why so many nonprofit groups, in particular, often don't even aren't able to sometimes adequately communicate to their communities and and their constituents what they do, how they do with their successes or their availability of their services because it's a lot of work and it takes time and in many cases takes money. This is something I want to talk about with you uh, at the conclusion of today's podcast <laughs> right. is how much work it really is and um, what what is behind the fact that sometimes some people don't seem to recognize I think I think it's very deceptively easy to exactly. listen to. No, absolutely. I mean, for so many of us who work in communication as our jobs, I think that's that's something we all kind of uh, come around to. We're all doing the time. it right if it seems easy. Yeah. Oh, uh, So anyway, so so what's great here though, right, is that this frequency instead of potentially going silent or silent for 12 hours a day will continue to be used yeah. for community radio. And congratulations 24 to the hours radio a day. project. Yeah, congratulations to them. But here's a case in which, you know, timeshares I think are sometimes thought to be lesser or less than or a consolation prize mm. or situations where people are disappointed, right? Because, you know, everyone wants a full frequency. But here's the sort of it's sort of a built a little bit of built-in insurance now. Because if a station, a low power FM group 
uh, isn't able to continue broadcasting, it's very difficult to transfer the ownership of that license into new hands. Sure. What happens more often is just simply the station goes off the air and then that frequency eventually can be reallocated and probably will not be reallocated to low power FM because there is not another right. low power FM licensing window it's, on the horizon. It's possible to imagine a scenario without the timeshare uh, option that the Q Center would have gotten the whole station, not half, mm-hmm. and that the Portland Radio Project would be uh, dust in the wind at this point. Right. A group the- of people who had been passionate two years ago about their radio station, but who lost. The FCC right. didn't by, by choose one. them. Yeah, well, I mean, the FCC chooses it by a point system. It's fairly objective and it's fairly upfront and very clear, right? Think, so, yeah. but, 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 right, it it can happen that nevertheless a group can look good on paper that for whatever reason isn't able to follow through. And there have been critics of of low power FM who you know cite the fact that many low power FMs, not many, but but a certain percentage of low power FMs fall. Away, because the the groups that get them are unable to sustain the operations. Maybe yeah. in some cases weren't even prepared ultimately to really get them off the ground when the license was actually issued. They, and they 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 fault sort of the the fact that of low power FM period, or they fa- they fault huh. the uh, the the licensing uh, approach, or in some actually fault it being nonprofit would like it to see it be a commercial service, thinking that would somehow make it more sustainable. Although. There's quite a few more sustainable, but less that. fun to listen to for well, me. Well, and, and and because commercial radio is doing so well in this country, um, you know. Uh, so, but in fact, though, I think that uh, you know, if we compare low power FM to say like small businesses, if we compare it to like restaurants, mm-hmm. uh, I would I would argue that low power FM does at least as well as most small businesses do in terms of the percentage that last a year or longer, and this percentage are able to stay on the air. I don't think that the low power FMs go off the air at the same rate that most small sure. businesses do go out of business. It's such an exciting, and they are essentially small businesses. It's such an exciting model, and it's uh, it's just I'm a little I'm a little disappointed that it's it's only going to happen that one time. Like well, we don't know that. We don't know that. Okay, I'm just being a little bit of a pessimist. You're being a pessimist. Assuming so, that we've reached the end of radio. Right. We don't know this, right? <laughs> first of all, I mean, the first window happened in 2000, right? That so was this, a long time ago. That was a long time ago, right? But a lot had to happen. So, again, that's why we say, you know, people email us every so often. Like, oh, I miss a 2013 window. When will I get another chance? And the answer is we don't know. The answer is not you won't. The answer is we don't know. Yeah. Because the FCC now tackles these priorities on kind of a rolling basis, they have to – they're currently dealing with translators, repeater stations right now, many of which can use the same frequencies that low-power FM can be on. So that will have to be complete and cleared out before there could possibly be another low-power FM window. And also because of the sheer availability of frequency space, uh, of bandwidth – we know that there will not be an opportunity for new low power FMs in many communities simply because all of the all of the all of the uh, LPFM eligible spaces will sure. effectively have been used up in Certain this last big window. cities are full exactly, and maybe even some medium sized cities. You know, because it, really lots of stations got licensed this time around. So I, was, I think we can call an unqualified success mm-hmm. from that standpoint. So you know, and there is only so much bandwidth. There's only so much. Uh, space on the dial so it's not as if there's going to be another 2013 window simply because we hope a lot of those stations will still be on the air whenever that next time around is whether it's in seven years or 10 years or whatever it happens to be so it's not that it won't ever happen again but yes 
a lot of focus now goes on sustaining the stations. But I think that these timeshare arrangements sure. end up in a way being an insurance policy to at least make sure that that these frequencies stay community radio. And or or even if they stay, you know, um, not quite community radio, but college radio, or even local religious Christian radio, or ra- local radio of another sort, I think that's a win um, that, that they persist and not simply uh, go silent and 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 get sort of maybe re auctioned off at some later date to become a repeater of a of a country station seventy five miles away. Um, so you know, this congratulations to Portland Prayer Project, but I did really want to talk a little yeah. bit about that. You know, the, that there could be some that there's some positive outcomes and, and some the, good things about these timeshare arrangements. The good people at the Portland Radio Project tell us that their plan is to collaborate with the Q Center to do some of that work that I've been talking about right at the top of the segment, where um, they're going to focus on the work that the Q Center is doing in their public service segments. So we're going to go back to uh, follow up on something from the 10th podcast, number 10. Oh my gosh. August, 2015. So what happens when you pile them up? Exactly. So we're going to, there's some news about audience engine. Oh yeah. Audience Engine is a online uh, collaboration and fundraising tool that uh, is being pioneered through a, a new company called Conjera, which was, which is the brainchild of WFMU, community radio station in New Jersey, and its station manager Ken Friedman. Um, when we talk, when you talked to Ken. Uh, back back in in more than a year ago. Um, they had hoped to be launching uh, the first sort of modules of Audience Engine, which would be a free set of, of open source tools yeah. for like having discussion boards and podcasts. I, mean, I think it's fair to say fundraising online. What this is is that Ken Friedman, uh, when he was working at WFMU, he really pioneered using the internet uh, to build community radio up in that new space where, where right. communities uh, – uh, of course, they were listening to the radio, but now here they are on the internet. So many ways that the internet works uh, <laughs> that that are brand new that a radio station can put to use. And he is uh, attempting to make those tools uh, more available for more stations now. Right, right. So instead of we're relying on like third parties that might go away, you know, like right. like or everyone inventing the wheel for themselves. Exactly. To instead have these open source right. tools that they can do to build upon. And that was one of the big themes. Instead of um, you know uh, relying on Facebook, basically, mm-hmm. we could just say Facebook because that's where more stations. Lots of other tools, yeah. but right, most whether, stations are probably putting a lot of work into their Facebook pages, and and then Facebook gets all of the benefits or changes the algorithm so yeah. that your people who follow you don't see all your posts and or can't see what happened last year. Exactly. So that's, a, that's um, one that bugs me. You'd hope that it would debut the first, uh, I think, the fundraising module last year, last November, right. and it didn't come to pass. Um, and so there's an article in Current, which is the uh, the news uh, journal for public radio, uh, that says now that Audience Engine is targeting an early 2017 rollout. Okay. Um, so the first module comes out as something called Mint, M-Y-N-T-E. Um, which is really it's uh, the fundraising component, which WFMU is already running. Okay, um, and it's so and you know so it, it's so you can take payments online again without having necessarily rely entirely on some third party um, company that 
you know, takes, of course, its cut and or and or may also go out of business, <laughs> leaving you in the lurch because it didn't make, you know, because it uh, uh, took too much VC money and couldn't come through. Um, and at it coming on then will also be tools uh, to help all sorts of nonprofit organizations, especially news gathering organizations. So not just specifically radio. Right. So because we, we again, this is something we, we get questions about every so often because we've reported on it. Um, people say, oh, when will Audience Engine be ready for my station? And we've mostly been able to say we don't know. Um, so now we get a sense that uh, the first release um, will come out in early 2017. So we want to make sure that we uh, – that we had that out there, and I think cool. part of part of Audience Engine is is having a content management system. So basically, it's a whole bundled thing, so that you can run your station's website, have the fundraising tool, have the discussion and collaboration the forums, tool, forums, the comments, all 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 on your website. So it's all at yourstation.org or whatever it happens to be, um, where you, in some cases, can pay uh, Conjera to host it for you. Or if you have people who are savvy about putting uh, together web software, you could host it yourself. And the idea, again, you own it. So, you know, when uh, if, if you had a Tumblr site and all of a sudden Yahoo, now owned by Verizon, decides that Tumblr costs too much money to run and they're going to end the service, right? You'd be, you, you'd be SOL. You'd have to yeah. find a new place to host your website. But if you're hosting it all on your, on your uh, audience engine driven website as your own .org or whatever, .com, um, the idea would be that you would have the resources to continue going on. And this is something which I've preached many, I think I've preached here on the show. Sure. It's, and it's come up, you know, Jennifer and I talked about it recently. I, I can't remember which exact episode, but, um, she had visited a station where uh, the majority of their of their activity online was being done on their Facebook page, yeah. which was uh, wonderful. They were engaging with the audience and their community, but also troubling from uh, um, from Jennifer's standpoint and as a historian who cares about stations holding on to their history for longer than um, – uh, the length of time that Facebook allows you, to. yeah, which which is always sort of fungible, right? Exactly, and it's not an, it's not a screw Facebook. You know, it, I'm not saying don't use Facebook. I'm not ever saying don't use Twitter or Pinterest or Instagram. So much as understand that these tools should be supplementing something which your station, your organization, your podcast owns. Uh, always make sure you own your files and you know where they are. Yeah. You know, you may, you know, the nature of the internet is for many of these things, it is easier to use a service uh, to host things. We use SoundCloud, for instance, to host our podcast, but. SoundCloud, I mean, apparently is, you know, going to be bought at some point. You constantly hear rumors about someone's buying SoundCloud. We don't know what's going to happen. Could go out of business. Um, should that happen, we still have all – I have all the files in multiple places so that we could quickly right. spool up and rehost them somewhere else. As we record this podcast. When you get our RSS feed, it says radiosurvivor.com. We own the domain. <laughs> we own our website. And we want to make sure that – uh, any sort of gap in service is minimal and not permanent because we didn't know where our stuff was. And I think that Audience Engine is is part of this overall philosophy that um, it's not about forget about these services or forget about third parties or you know don't work with a Facebook or et cetera so much as make sure this is a supplement to what you do yeah. and not the core repository of everything you do. So we'll have a link to, to that article from current in the show notes. Yes. And uh, we should have radio survivor.com slash podcast. We should update. We should, we should reach out to Ken again. Yeah. Since, uh, it's been, He's uh, probably pretty busy. It's been 57, 
Uh, well, you know, we'll give him an opportunity to, to no, join absolutely. us. I think it'll be good. It'll it's be been good. 57 weeks since we last spoke. It'll be good to hear from him so. and to get a better and get a more clear update on actually what, what is rolling out. And maybe that's something we can talk to him when it's, when it's actually hitting the ground. So sure. People can know when he has to something expect. to say. Yeah. So just, uh, but all the show notes are at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is number 67. Uh, that you can uh, tune into and read all about. Next up is our feature interview about community radio on the international stage. Well, we're joined on the line by Jim Ellinger with Austin Airwaves. Jim is joining us because he's heading off to the Grassroots Radio Conference to give a talk titled Community Radio, an International Perspective. Uh, Jim is joining us via Skype. Welcome, Jim. Hi, Eric. How are things in Portland? Not bad. Fall weather is finally is finally here. Uh, Jim, Austin Airwaves, tell us about your organization. Sure. Glad to do it, Eric. Uh, we're not a radio station. We're not even a radio show. We're kind of a small, nimble, nonprofit educational group uh, based here in Austin. We have about eight people on our board of directors, several lawyers, and a whole bunch of engineers and consultants. And we take on individual community radio projects. Uh, we've helped put low-power and full-power radio stations on the air here in the States. And we've also done quite a few now international radio projects, which I'll be talking about at the Grassroots Radio Coalition meeting. Uh, And we've also been doing increasingly numbers of post-disaster radio. We were in the Lower Ninth Ward after Katrina. Uh, We got an enormous amount of publicity nationwide and and even worldwide uh, when we put a radio station on the air for the 25,000 evacuees in the Houston Astrodome uh, after Katrina. And then just about a year ago, we put a small emergency station on the air in the pretty little Texas town of Wimberley, about an hour outside of Austin that was hit by a devastatingly, disastrously deadly flood, a dozen killed. And we were able to put an emergency station on the air that they immediately began to use uh, to provide emergency information to that community. So we're kind of a unique group. We're There's a couple other groups similar to us around the country, but we mainly focus on individual projects. And increasingly, those are overseas. Yeah. So uh, what are you working on overseas? Well, we have done numerous projects. We helped put the first community radio station on the air on the island of Borneo, uh, which is in a in uh, Malaysia, a very repressive government. We've been to Ghana a number of times helping out agriculture stations, uh, groups of farmers who got a station that went on the air and were struggling to maintain it. Been down in Mozambique. I've been in the wilds of Panama. Uh, We've been all over the place helping stations both get on the air or maintain their presence on the airwaves. Uh, Most recently, We have done, uh, as I said, a number of trips to Ghana, and coming up next year, 2017, we're heading off to remote uh, Cameroon to help a station there called Radio Taboo. Huh. Hey, this is fascinating and really exciting. So when you go to somewhere, and I'll allow you to pick the place, because you just listed off uh, quite a a list of international destinations, places where, where I know nothing about community radio. Uh, or or close to nothing about community radio. So when you go to one of these places, who do you get to run the radio station? And and why don't you pick one uh, in specific? Sure. Uh, a lot of times the assignment is uh, we've gotten some support uh, from uh, USAID funded groups. 
a lot of times they're not necessarily a radio project so much as an agriculture project or a women's education project mm. or a water project. And they say, well, there's a radio station there and we want you to go down there and produce a show or teach them how to do shows, how to, uh, how to cut back on malaria, how to get more money for their food crops, to find out what their crops are worth. Because sometimes the buyers will pay one rate in one village and a lower rate in another. So we have been to places like Panama, in the remote part of Panama, the Darien Gap, where the three indigenous communities, the, the, the Kuna, the Wanan, and the Embara communities, the only radio station on the air that speaks their language is a Catholic radio station, believe it or not, run by the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on Saturdays and Sundays, they broadcast programming uh, in these indigenous languages. So it, we go all over. Sometimes we help put the station on the air. Virtually everything we need, we bring over ourselves. That's a big thing. You really can't ship things uh, to many parts of the world. Uh, you have to pay bribes or they just get lost. Yeah. So a lot of you have to carry in yourself. The boxes get opened on the way. They get opened. They just don't arrive. Uh, the, probably the most dramatic of those situations was Haiti. We were in Haiti six weeks after the earthquake. It was, it was very bad. And I brought 300 pounds of radio gear in three big truck boxes, 99 pounds each, one pound under the limit, and, and more or less single-handedly muscled those things through hmm. uh, the Haitian uh, customs office the customs shack, they call it, at the Port-au-Prince airport, which was very chaotic, uh, and was able to get out through there and got the equipment in. We've learned that pretty much if you want to put a radio station on the air or do any sort of project, we have to keep it small scale, and it's usually we bring the stuff with us. Wow, what an adventure. So uh, what what are you going to be trying to communicate to the audience at the Grassroots Radio Conference with your talk, Community Radio and International Perspective? Well, I hope to be inspirational. Uh, most of these folks, um, so many of them are fairly new to community radio. They have just recently got their LPFM, low power FM license. They've just gone on the air or they're about to. Uh, they're kind of giddy with excitement. It's the first chance they've had to speak to their communities. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a pretty good moment for community radio in America, all these stations going on the air. Yeah. And, and, and we show how valuable they can be, that you can play music to minority communities. You can play music, uh, uh, have discussions in languages other than English. You can talk about politics. You can have opposing views. You can play music that will never make the mainstream uh, radio stations. And what we teach people is that we use community radio so that people can speak for themselves and to themselves, that we allow a community to talk to itself about issues that they feel is important. And often this is very, very local. This would be just a small town. This would be just a village. And if you didn't live in that small town or village, this probably wouldn't be of much interest to you. But if you do live in that small town, it could be of great interest to you. It could be there's a flood coming or the school ran out of money or there's some racial violence or the police have gotten have become a problem. You know, really important issues before communities that frequently are just never going to make it to the radio. So we take that concept of using low power, simple radio mm-hmm. and extrapolate it and say, well, if you were in Haiti after the earthquake, what would you do? If you were in Borneo and trying to save your language, how would you do it? And that's how that's what's led Austin Airwaves on these many radio adventures. 
Wow. So uh, let's let's talk about one of those adventures. What, what was what's one that you most recently completed? A project for uh, the radio station. Sure, uh, Borneo. Uh, trust me, I know I knew very little about the island of Borneo before I left. Uh, Borneo is the third largest and third tallest island in the world. Okay, it's a, it's a part of the Arca, uh, Malaysian archipelago. Two thirds of the island is Indonesia. One third is Malaysia, uh, and a little thing called the Sultan of Brunei, a quirky little billionaire of a prince down there. It is a very repressive government. No right to gather. No free speech. No private ownership of weapons. Um, no freedom of the press. Um, and when I got picked up by a group in London called Radio Max, uh, and they assist stations going on the air, and they asked me to be a part of their team. I was like, well, now why in the world will the Malaysian government allow a radio station, a community radio station on the air? I mean, it's just, and I didn't really find out until I got there. Yeah. Is that the language of these folks is, it's the Kalabit, spelled Kilabit, it's pronounced Kalabit. The Kalabit language is greatly in danger. Not unlike trees and animals, many, many are disappearing, they're becoming extinct. And the Malaysian government wanted to help save the Kalabit language which was spoken by maybe a couple of thousand people. So they allowed this little radio station, all of 50 watts, in the back of the little community inter, uh, station, uh, community uh, building that had internet. They allowed the station to go on the air with the very strict rule they could only speak Kalabit. No English, no French, no Chinese, just Kalabit. And these were villagers who were fairly sophisticated folks. They had motorcycles and cell phones, and they knew what was going on in the world pretty much. Uh, but they had never certainly run a radio station. Yeah. So I came in along with another team uh, members from uh, London, and we were there for a while and helped these folks run their little community station. That is uh, a fascinating story that leads me to so many questions. Uh, well, tell me, tell me about that because, I mean – it sounds like uh, it's. I, I imagine since you don't speak uh, Kalabit, uh, there you can't answer all of my questions that I have because I want to know what I want to know what they did, how they talked about it, um, how you know how repressive was the over. You know, did they have free speech? Um, but but tell me more about building this radio station because I, I imagine your role was mostly just as a as an engineer, or you also were te uh, teaching production uh, techniques. Yeah, I was more of a consultant. I'm always very careful to say that I'm not an engineer. Okay. Uh, the many the many real engineers involved with Austin Airwaves uh, will get up in my face if I try to say I'm an engineer. Fair enough. <laughs> Sometimes I say I play an engineer on the radio. Uh, uh, but I'm the guy that actually goes out. One guy said I was the Birkenstocks on the ground. I'm the guy that actually goes to the village in Borneo. Mm -hmm. And I bring all the equipment. And if there's any technical training or wiring or soldering to be done, these guys train me. You know, have me do it over and over until I get it right. Okay. Um, so a lot of it was just basic interviewing skills, basic uh, board operation, uh, the flow of a show, how to do interviews. Um, but gosh, it, I imagine there's so much, uh, oh, I'm so fascinated because, you know, you can, you can, you can, uh, you can teach people what you know, but I'm sure culturally they have other ideas about, about radio. I, ah, uh, all I want to do is, is know this radio station in and out now. 
Right. And so we would be small training. You know, everything's yeah. about sitting around a table training. And there'd be a half a dozen women, some young women, oh, uh, older women from the village. And we would go through these little workshops and, and do rehearsals and they'd get it wrong. They would hit the wrong switch again. And I go, great, way to go. And they look at me and I said, the only way you're going to learn, the only way I ever learned anything was by doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. You did it wrong three times in a row. Congratulations. And they sort of thought that was a little funny. But then we got to be friends and they did. They got over being embarrassed by being in front of a man who obviously came from all the way from America and he was an expert and, you know, and they're just a little village person there. You know, there is that thing. And you need to move beyond that and say, no, I learned this just the same way you did by making mistakes. Um, and while the older, uh, while the, the younger kids were there, they would pick up things pretty quick. They're yeah. already playing internet games. They've got, uh, you know, access to the internet a little bit, but as the older ladies, that were sort of just kind of looking over their shoulder. And both the kids and me sort of realized that, well, the kids are going to pick this up pretty quick. It's grandma. It's going to take a little while. So you would teach to the kids, but you were really speaking to the older ladies. And mind you, these are the ladies with the real long earlobes you may have seen. Okay. Uh, right? They, used to, they put the rings in their ears. And there's only about a dozen of those ladies left. And they travel all over the world. And they're... Uh. They're very nice middle-class ladies. They're very nice. They're good cooks, very friendly. Uh, but there's only about a dozen of these ladies left, and they go to like world's fairs and international conferences, and they speak fluent Kalabit. Very few kids in this village want to learn Kalabit. They want to learn Cantonese. They want to learn French, and they sure as heck want to learn English. Why would I want to speak Kalabit yeah. except when I come back to the village to see grandma? And so... It was those sort of challenges we faced. Uh, and the other one, of course, it's friggin' remote. You know, it's a two-hour plane trip, more or less straight up the side of a mountain, the hmm. side of the planet Earth. You just fly up and up and up. All the trees are gone. 90% of the island of Borneo has already been destroyed and is now being replanted by palm oil palms. Oh, man. All neat, perfectly in a line. Each one has a barcode, and it's for the oligarchy that controls Malaysia. They're 100% corrupt and just horrible people. And most of Borneo, one of the most exotic places in the world, has already been destroyed. And because they bulldoze the soil and all that stuff, it's not going to come back. And that's very difficult to deal with, seeing one of the most beautiful and exotic locations in the world. Borneo yeah. has already been largely destroyed. For the, for palm oil monoculture. Wow. So you, you set up a radio station there. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's quite something. It's, it's like, it's like you, you built a bus that's rolling down a hill and then you jumped off the bus, <laughs> right, to come what? home. Where does the bus end up? Where does this radio station end up? How <laughs> how do we even keep track since we don't speak Kalabit? Is it on the internet? Are they streaming? Uh, no, the internet's spotty up Of there. course. So it's just a little island of information that That's uh, right. it's just going to be a little spark of curiosity in my in my head probably for the rest of my life. How how is this radio station doing? Well, tell me tell me more about lessons you've learned about um helping helping people so I'm, I'm still really curious about uh who runs these radio stations mm -hmm. uh, since that's the hardest work i know of you know mm -hmm. you, you you build a station that's that's a lot of paperwork but uh keeping the station on the air 
in the years that that come after its founding uh i mean i know you have experience uh, uh helping people set up structure in mm-hmm. the u.s to, mm-hmm. to run a station uh, is it similar when when you're in somewhere like mozambique yeah, well most of the stations i've visited are, are on the air uh the one in borneo had been on the air a matter of days i Missed the grand opening. Mm-hmm. Other ones in Ghana and in Panama and Mozambique had been on the air for a while, and they were looking to improve their situation. That once, generally speaking, that once the station is on the air, the government leaves it alone. It's providing an important service. They're out there in the middle of nowhere. Somebody's gonna have to go out there to do it. Generally, they're left alone. Now, sometimes during election periods. Uh, they'll monitor the stations or they'll cut back. And like in Borneo, yeah. there's no politics allowed to be discussed 90 days before the election. But the licensing is a whole other bag. Uh, same here in the U.S. You'll find groups that help people get the license. And that takes years and years and years with the FCC. We've waited eight years. We've even waited 11 years to finally get the license. For a United years- States station. For the United States station, full power and low power. Yeah. And it's usually just a couple of radio nerds like myself who kind of just, you know, go about their life and wait for the, the paperwork to go through and sure. file amendments and talk to the lawyer and engineer. But once you get the license, then it sort of blossoms. Now you got you got reggae DJs. Now you got guys who want to be news reporters. Now you got uh, the cities paying attention to you. And it really changes uh, the dynamic once you're actually on the air. Right. Down in, but of course it's expensive. There's always electricity to pay, and, and uh, oftentimes the internet or the phone. In Panama, uh, in a little village, uh, El Baye, uh, just a, a little bitty place, and towards the, what they call the end of the road, there's only one more village, and after that the road ends, uh, and that's why you can't drive from North America to South America. There's no road there. Huh. This is a pretty tough area, and the station manager, very popular. We'd be driving around town, going to lunch or something, and people would pull her over. Hi, how you doing? And they would hand her like $5, and that would be their payment for their ad or underwriting or their support for the station for that week. And so these little bits of money would come in all the time. They'd have, you know, a couple people making a small stipend. But the getting the station on the air is a very different situation than keeping it on the air. Uh, and we've tried to help out on both ends. Yeah. What lessons are you going to be trying to communicate to the Grassroots Radio Conference audience, which is made up of a lot of people with new low-power FM stations? Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I think you were telling me before we went on the air that it's going to be a largely Midwest uh, station audience. What what do you think they – what what lessons can they learn uh, from these international community radio projects? Yeah, good question. Um, the, what they're doing, you know, building these little small stations, very modest operations, just about as simple a means of communication as you can build, has been done elsewhere and is being done elsewhere. And they're a part of an international movement. And that taking those lessons learned can be used and applied elsewhere around the world. Okay. And so how does that, what's the lesson there for American low-power FM stations? Sure. That information is power, and the mechanism for delivering that information is a radio station. It is the most efficient means of communications there is. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have the print newspaper. You don't even have to read. You don't have to read English. You don't have to have uh, the internet or television if the power goes out. You know, when things get real bad, we hand out radios. When we were in the parking lot of the Houston Astrodome during the chaotic days after Katrina, and nothing like that had ever hit America, not on that scale, yeah. we stood out there 
and after they turned us down and said, you can't come in to put the station on the air, they don't have radios anyway. Why don't you go back to Austin, buddy? So with the folks from Democracy Now! and KPFT Houston Pacifica, we handed out 2,000 radios, literally handed out 2,000 radios to all those evacuees and went back and said, okay, they all have radios. Now what's the problem? So radio is the most efficient tool for providing information to empower communities. And increasingly, it's the only tool if a flood or a fire hits you. Right, because of the power. Right. And the towers. The power is in the towers. Only one tower needs to stay up instead of uh, a whole a whole cell phone infrastructure, which tends, mm-hmm. tends to get uh, stressed out. Jim Ellinger, thanks for joining us on Radio Survivor. Thanks for telling sure. us about uh, some of the stuff you're going to talk about with the at the Grassroots Radio Conference. What are you looking forward to when you get to the Grassroots Radio Conference? <laughs> I think I get to be real popular for the weekend. Uh, I Of the approximately 100 people that have already registered, like I know like three quarters of them. Mm-hmm. Small, small <laughs> uh, town. Yeah, and it, it's right very, if you've ever been to Hot Springs, it's a wonderful place to go. I mean, it literally has hot springs. It has the famous bathhouses. Uh, they're having a film fest. They have a new radio station that's run by Solar Power, which is next door to an organic pizza place. All right, stop Hot it. Springs stop is a pretty it. neat place. <laughs> that's great. So, uh, and, and, and grassroots radio conferences, what are they like for, well, some, for someone who's never been? Yeah, the conferences are pretty good. It, it, I should note that the GRC, the Grassroots Radio Coalition, really doesn't hardly exist on the physical plane. There are no offices. There are no staff. It's just a list uh, that people make use of. And then every year or so, some local radio station will say, well, we're doing pretty well. You know, Why don't we take on a bunch more work? And we'll host a national conference. Yeah. Um, it's it's definitely smaller. It's, grassroots is the right word. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the NFCB, the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. It's not certainly not NPR. It's just small stations. Uh, most of these stations can send one person. They usually pay for their own gas and scrimp to get the registration together. These are not big, wealthy s- cities. Many of them are rural stations. And who, for the first time, because of the LPFM Act, are getting on the air. Yeah. So it's it's nice to see that entirely volunteer work. Maybe they get a grant from a local arts council and, and the pizza place gives them 20 pizzas. But it's just a grassroots event. And this year's GRC, the GRC 2016 in Hot Springs, is now looking to be a particularly good one. Well, uh, I'm, I'm glad you're going, and I'm glad the event is taking place, and I'm only slightly jealous, but I'll get over it. Uh, <laughs> Jelly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, have a good time, Jim Ellinger, and thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. It was a pleasure. Yeah, we love Radio Survivor. Viva Radio Survivor. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Eric, for talking with Jim Ellinger of Austin Airways. It was great to hear about these stations going on the air in places uh, out in Malaysia and in Borneo and in uh, South America. Every station is a story that I want to hear a lot more about. Yeah, let's send let's send a reporter out Gosh, into the field. I would love to. It'd be it'd be wonderful to send a collabit uh, language reporter to exactly. come back and, and translate into English. What what are they talking about on on that our radio Southeast station Asian today? Southeast Asian community radio tour or South American radio tour. I'm going to put Matthew Lazar on the assignment. There's so much more to do, and I could put that as a pitch: is that uh, you could help us do more of that um, because of 
folks like you who uh, donate a little bit of money to Radio Survivor, we're sending Jennifer to the Grassroots Radio Conference, uh, which you've just heard all about, and so she can report back on what has gone on there and bring back the voices of Grassroots Radio that is going on the air all over uh, the United States and elsewhere. Um, give us a hand. Should you we can, say mostly Jennifer's going on her own dime, but there's a little we're bit. We're contributing, there's yes. There's a little bit of help because yeah, of Radio well, I Survivor. I think we're doing a little more than even a little bit of help. That's good. We're, but yeah. I want people to know that uh, she's not staying She's not staying in uh, five-star hotels no, and ordering no, no, room no. service no, no, exactly. on Radio Survivor. No, this is very, still very grassroots, but uh, the fact that um, – but in this particular case, she was able to go because – of oh, the good, help. good, good. Yeah, this this was a, this was a, a sort of a pivotal thing that that allowed her to go. So um, we want to thank Every everyone who contributes to our Patreon campaign, patreon.com slash Radio Survivor, and to or who has given a one time donation at radiosurvivor.com slash support. We really appreciate. It really does help us do. And what we do and expand what we do. Uh, we'd love to turn this into a regular. Uh, regularly uh, kind of distributed program that would be free to air for low power FM college stations, community stations. Um, we could use some help in doing that too. So we have those uh, goals set up uh, at our Patreon site. So go to patreon.com slash radio survivor. You've been to a couple of grassroots radio conferences. In Two in fact. Yes. What was your, what's your favorite memory? What was a good talk? What did you like about these things? The one, I mean the one in 2000 is sort of a distant memory. I have to admit, um, for me, it, it is less about the talks and more about meeting people, mm-hmm. right? It's more about the people you meet and learning about how other stations go about making great radio. It's the exchange of tips and tricks and the networking, right? The the the, the realization amongst many who go for the first time and that they're not alone, right? That they're they're not the only ones trying to make this this radio station work or get off the ground. That's something you brought up about a year ago that I still like to think about. That if if I'm exp- and I've actually put this into practice recently, that if I have a question and I don't know what the answer is, I and I work at a radio station, I should be able to pick up the phone and dial dial a friend at another station. They might not have all of the answers, but they've certainly probably dealt with similar problems. Yeah, or they know someone who does yeah. know the answers, right? And I think is this sort of interdependence. Um, helping. Which, which, yeah, it's helping is really helpful in the same way that, uh, you know, I talk with folks uh, throughout community radio as well, sometimes with questions or they call me with questions. And again, I don't always have the answer, but maybe I can help direct uh, to someone who does. Or in some cases, it's more, it's just a, a situation in which more heads on the problem are, are, are yeah. more likely to solve it. Uh, you know, two heads are better than one or three heads are better than one. So we're going to hear from Jennifer when she returns from the Grassroots Radio Conference. But if you are listening to the sound of our voices and you have attended a Grassroots Radio Conference and you want to tell us why you thought they're a good idea to still exist, why are, why are people putting so much effort into traveling to be together in this day and age? I'm sure there's a good reason for it. And we would love to hear about it here on Radio Survivor. Uh, Drop us a line, yeah. podcast at radiosurvivor.com. I would really appreciate it. Paul, I have a – there's something on my mind, and we have talked about this before on the podcast, but it's not resolved. It's an ongoing discussion. I have a new well, friend. I haven't fixed it yet? No. I have a new friend, and I'm not going to uh, – I'm going to anonymize information so we could talk about the issues that me and the new friend have been discussing. He wants to – 
he. I've already gendered him. So half the people in the world that it could have been, uh, or or you could give start or take. over as they. <laughs> he he has a podcast that he wants to create. It's a dream in his mind. He has not recorded uh, anything at the moment, and uh, we were introduced because of this. Because I know about podcasts, mm-hmm. and um, I gave him a lot of advice, and I talked to him a lot, and I got a little bit frustrated talking to him, mostly because I've been down this road before with other people recently who have wanted to start podcasts. We teased this earlier in the show, so I can just go back to that to start our conversation. Um, one of the things that came up was uh, the complexity and the uh, highly produced uh, aspiration the, the, the idea that he had in his mind of how this show was going to sound uh, was highly produced. So so something in the in, – more like This American Life, yep. less uh, like Radio Survivor. Yep. More like a, what, what episode of Radio Survivor before we realize, wait, we're, uh, we're doing way too many edits, <laughs> internal edits. Uh, yeah, more like episode 67 of Radio Survivor and less like episode 3 of Radio Survivor. Yeah, um – so that was one of the things that uh, was was on my mind, but I don't think that's what we and, you and, and I are going to talk about. Hasn't happened yet, right? And so, yeah. So I also so one of the things that uh, I think is good advice for everybody is if you are dreaming about a podcast but you haven't produced one yet, um, and this is what I told my friend: all of that that you just came up with, all of the ways that it was going to sound a little bit like This American Life, those are wonderful goals. Start with a very good interview. Yes. Because that's the building block yes. of radio. Yes, I think that's that's great. And that's probably, if you're going to be realistic, that's actually what your first episode if, if is you're, going to be. If you're talking about your traditional podcast, right, is either, right, typically a couple people talking who are good at it, relatively knowledgeable or at least entertaining, or it's based upon interviews. It's the rare podcast that's really a monologue. Right, they exist, but well, they're, they're he, rare. He, but what he had in mind was actually um, an interview, a feature story where he, where mm-hmm. someone would go out and report a story on location, yeah. and then a panel discussion, and uh, great. So, I mean, this is so he, this is this is a great question, right? Because I think this is about creative endeavor. It's not just podcasting. There are many people who are writers who never write. If that makes sense, right? Yeah. And it's because, well, writing is hard. It's because often what you write sucks. It's funny that you it's bring this garbage up. garbage on the page to you, to you. Your own yeah. internal filter, your own high standards interfere with your ability to get things on the page. And I, I just, you know, it's funny. I just listened to a podcast. That was not taking up podcasting, but taking up creative endeavor. It's the um, the podcast is called The Moment with okay. Brian Koppelman. Brian Koppelman is a screenwriter. Um, he is, I think, the creator and one of the writers behind the series Billions, which was on uh, Showtime this past fall. Mm-hmm. And he was talking to Seth Godin, who was kind of a publishing marketing guru. You're listening to thought leaders. Aren't yes, you? kind of thought leaders, I suppose. <laughs> I'm teasing. 
I suppose, yeah, absolutely. You know, and all that entails. Seth Godin known – he blogs with like a pithy one to two paragraph kind of musing on life. But sometimes it has to do with business. What What was the name of the podcast again? It's called The Moment, the Moment. with Brian Cobbleman. But they talked about – because they're both writers. Right. Uh, Cobbleman's a screenwriter uh, and uh, Godin comes from traditional book publishing. He was once an editor. Um, and – talked about how it's this sort of internal sensor that gets in your way that you want to do something really great. And and to some extent, sometimes it's easier to want to do something really great, but not do it than to do something that isn't really great and, and sort of live with the fact that you're, you have yet to get there and talked about how say like Ray Bradbury uh, sort of famously sat down and wrote every day Many things never, never published, but had the practice because he would be in practice for the time in which he actually had something. Fascinating that we live in this moment where, because I was, I've been ranting about some of the things that frustrated me and trying to 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 get clear in my mind uh, why it was that I couldn't communicate clearly to my new friend. everything I want to do about what I know about podcasts that he needs to know now before he starts. And one of the things that, that made that, that I came up with after we had spoken is that nobody sits down in this day and age and, uh, truly believes that they're just going to make a feature film. But we live in this moment of podcasting where it just seems like, I don't know if people don't. I mean, I think that, right. right. I think, I mean, I I think, right. They don't think that they're going to sit down and make a feature film that instantaneously, spontaneous generation goes, in, goes into film. wide release. But I think people do sit down and say that they're going to make a film that they sure. hope would be, a you know, I mean, I think there are people who, who want to be the next sort of Richard Linklater or, uh, you know, the next Blair Witch Project. But right? there's, there's, there, I'm going but to But podcasting is a low, as a low are, barrier. There are entry. more people who think they might be the next Mark Maron than think they right. might well, be and, the next and, Richard and Linklater. And that's because there still is not quite a studio system. Right. There's still the ability through yeah. sort of sheer happenstance to show up on the on the front page of the iTunes. So charts. one of the things that I tried to convince my new friend of was that uh, everything you think is about to happen uh, is genuine labor that someone will have to do. Right. It's not going to happen. And did you know that that idea that you had for that um, that thing that you called um, uh NPR style is actually a, a 12 to 20 hour day of it's work. Very expensive work. Yeah. Did, did you know that? The other thing that I want to talk to you about, because it really, this has come up more than once in my, in my, uh, in recent days of trying to help people with their new podcasts is I, I asked, um, who is your audience? Mm-hmm. Hopefully everyone was his answer. Yeah. Hopefully everyone, which I totally understand. We want everyone in the world to enjoy our podcast. But I got uh, a little bit uppity. I got a little bit – I got on my high horse and tried to convince him uh, not to say that or think that ever again and that he should actually focus on his audience much more specifically because – because I think hopefully everyone is, uh, uh, is a fiction. Especially in a podcast. Well, the sense of like a mass audience, and this is something which which Matthew takes up in his work, mm-hmm. right? Um, 
is a function as much of scarcity as it is some sort of national character or culture. Meaning, when you had three television networks right. and at most four television stations in a market, your audience sort of has to be everybody. Right. Or at least a third of everybody. And cutting that down by more specific demographics was difficult, if not self-defeating. Um, and the time in which there were many more newspapers in this country. So you and I, I mean, most of us listening here grew up in the time in which you had one or two daily newspapers. You go back the previous hundred years and a city like New York or Chicago would have had dozens and dozens and dozens of newspapers alongside your New York Herald was also a newspaper, which served the Yiddish speaking population, a newspaper, which uh, served the Irish diaspora. Daily Yiddish paper. Right. Exactly. But, 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 you know, but, (laughs) but, but it's another podcast. Right. But but because the the that being a dominant media form, but also a relatively accessible media form, the printing press at that point mm-hmm. being relatively accessible, you could have that. And so, if we think about podcasting, is more like that era of newspapers than it is uh, the sort of nineteen sixties or seventies of television. And so, the fact that of saying my audience is everybody, it's a lovely thought, but is also it's sort of impractical. Uh, I think in a real way um, because of the fact that there is no scarcity. I also thought it was limiting the content of his good idea for a show. Well, that, right. That, that, and I, and I tried to make the case and I'm now I'm going to have to dance around because I still want to keep this anonymous for him and his work. He had a great idea for a podcast uh, to, um, to talk about issues in a existing community that he he knows for a fact because he swims in that community every day. Uh, it's not a swimming community. That there is no good podcast for them. Right. So that's your audience. That, that, and that's what I was trying to There's tell your you. Audience. That's your audience. You don't want people that don't. Well, it's not that you don't want. Right. Right. But you well, don't want to just uh, pander to them and right. define every. So right. Term. I think I think the key here, right, is who is your audience and what do they want or need? Again. Too much of the time, and this happens in in radio in particular, we think, well, I want them to know, they need to know, et cetera. And that may be true, but especially with podcasting, the you oughta doesn't work so well, right? Because the world is full of you oughtas, right? But most every single person operates off of I wanna. They operate, I wanna know. I want to learn more. I want to laugh. I want to be entertained. This is what I'm interested in. This is what I want to learn more about. This is why I want to learn more about it. Not because you think I should know it and I oughta, but because this is what I want to do. And it's not about pandering. It's not about lowest common denominator. It's about thinking about what is the use of this medium? What is the use of this podcast? And why it's doubly important for podcasts is – Radio and television to an extent can do you oughta because they have scarcity and monopoly, right? Now, with television, you have cable. I mean, there's barely a scarcity there, right? There's hundreds and hundreds of channels. But when you get the broadcast, 
whether it's broadcast television or radio, still there's only like 20 channels, 25 channels really in any given market. And, and, and any given station has a monopoly on it. And, and if you want to watch broadcast television or listen to broadcast radio, you have those choices. You've got one of 25 or something like that. So to some extent, the UADA can happen because somebody was sort of a little passive. Even if the UADA is, I left the radio tuned in during traffic and didn't feel like or couldn't change the station when something I found to be less interesting came on. So you kind of forced me to listen to it. The podcast is utterly, utterly selective. Right. I choose it. I have to go through some effort to choose it. It's not passive. And I don't have 25 channels to choose from. I have thousands and thousands. And if I don't like it, I don't have to listen. I can stop at any point. It's even easier to and never come back and never possibly encounter that podcast again. Right. So <laughs> I really have to again. I really have to want to listen. I really want to have to go through what it takes to to subscribe, to download, and then to listen. And that is what any podcast producer is confronted with, is that. So why does somebody want to listen to your podcast? What needs does it serve? What desires does it serve? And who are they? Because, you know, that's going to tell you a little bit about what their desire is, right? We we conceive of it a little bit here, Radio Survivor. These are, you know, we conceive it of people who are in community radio and around community radio, maybe public radio as well, college radio, and interested in it. They want to do it better. They want to know what's going on. They're curious about uh, learning tips and tricks. Uh, and then we, I think there's also people who may be interested in podcasting and interested in some of these other things and also want to learn more about what's going on out there um, want to feel, and want to feel part of a community. Right. So, so beyond just the community they're in, but want to feel like there's something bigger out there uh, in and around these issues and find out what's going on. And in a way that's efficient and I hope fun and entertaining, um, you know, I, and that, that's kind of our conception, you know, but it, you and I had that conversation right. a year down. before we started the show. Who is this for? I worked with another group of very smart, talented, interesting folks who uh, had a podcast uh, planned, ready to go uh, long before I came along to, to to try to help them out with their show. And they had the same answer uh, that that they wanted the podcast to be for everybody. And I noticed that as, as episode five rolled in that they had that actually what was happening by default was that the podcast was only for uh, the people in their highly educated and and really specialized community, uh, it was it had turned inside baseball, and that's okay. That's right. a it wonderful, was wonderful topic for but, a podcast. But I had noticed that episode one had started as uh, this is for everybody, and and it had it had it it had gone that way through a weird form of uh, unplanned inertia. Right. And what I was trying to convince this crew of people to do. Uh, by furiously writing uh, long emails, was to to agree that every episode was actually going to be focused on the they were not not preaching to the choir, but they were going to be uh, the audience for the was the audience was the audience, which was specifically a group of academics and professionals who uh, work in this one field and have uh, shared interests. In a certain form of social justice, again, I'm kind of keeping yeah, them sure. anonymous, but I almost wonder if I don't even have to. That, that and that the and it, I realized when I was trying to convince them, this is a great podcast if you do it this way. That 
yes, you're not going to be um, converting people to your cause. When you only talk to your to each other, you might be missing out on that on that value. Mm-hmm. But what they were gaining was um, strengthening the ties in their community, uh, making more connections in their professional community, um, uh, furthering a conversation which was clearly happening uh, on the sidelines of their community, but they wanted to be happening more in public. Uh, you know, uh, keeping social justice in the forefront of the conversation for um, for the city planning community. I, I've outed them. And uh, all of those things seemed like really wonderful reasons to do the work that they were doing. And I, and I was hoping to convince them that that should always be the framework, not that, um, not that, that, that. Uh, well, maybe I need to go Bill Clinton on this. And, and, and maybe we need to talk about what for means, what is, is, right? And when someone says this podcast should be for everybody, maybe what they mean is it ought to be appropriate for everybody. Hmm. No one should feel unwelcome. Right. Yeah. So, right. In that way. So not so much that it's impenetrable to the lay person, so to speak, or someone who is not so steeped in the in in sort of the norms and the jargon that it should be approachable at the same time you can still say but our our key audience or even say our most prominent audience is probably people who meet th- these uh who, who fit into these slots right and mark marriage a great cha- i think is actually a great op- a great example yeah cuz okay. that was a comedy Community well, it, it, podcast. Right, exactly. Inside baseball. It was stand up. So Mark Marin, right, is, is a stand up comedian who, uh, when he started his podcast in 2009, had been um, employed in various ways by Air America Radio and had lost, had been fired for the second or third time. And I feel his, like his driving animus was jealousy of Jon Stewart. Right, in exactly. That moment. Right, right. And, and he and his stand-up career was not going well he was not he was feeling kind of jilted and kind of angry i think a bad divorce yeah bad uh, yeah (laughs) a bad divorce but seemed to have a talent of sorts for doing things on air and he started a podcast with his producer um who had been working at air america at the time and did it kind of on a download at the air america studio until they remember those days until he started doing it from his garage and the early episodes were mostly talking to fellow comedians. And it was very inside ball about being a road comic, about being a stand-up, often about Mark talking with people who he felt like he had developed a bad relationship with or pissed yeah, off. It was or a being, weird, like, t- the, the eighth step in the 12 steps. He was right. apologizing to his friends to, to, episode to be, one right. and through 20. Through, or 100 yeah. or so, the, you know, going back. And it was sort of thought of as, as a comedy podcast because of that. And it, it was very popular even so because there are lots of people who love comedy, love comedians, or sort of drawn to this peak inside – this very raw peak inside uh, this world which is otherwise sort of experienced you know, backstage or you know, at the bar after the club is closed. You're getting a peek into a world and it was very tra- – certainly attractive to me. What it's turned into now, of course – is something which kind of is for everybody in a way because more often he talks to 
uh, artists, uh, celebrities, uh, actors, writers, right. musicians. He's the Terry Gross of his own garage now. Yeah, exactly. President Obama, for instance, was on go. his show. Uh, there's there's a through line because he really wants to get at what makes a person tick rather than talk about their most recent thing. And the interviews are still very similar to what he used to do. And and they're, you know, Mark is a key player in it. Right. But it is more for everybody because it's not just about comedy well, it's, anymore. It's, I like that you brought up Mark Maron because it's also – You brought up me. Mark Maron actually. Oh, good. <laughs> I like that we brought up Mark Maron because I'm thinking about – um, other podcasts that I've heard recently that um, are doing something similar where two people sit down and they start having a conversation and um, I feel like they are forgetting the audience while they're talking. They start, it starts getting strangely uh, internal. Right. And, and the trick is that despite the, that's, that's a, it's like a magic trick that Mark Marin had been doing with his with his podcast. It sounded like they were just two friends shooting the breeze, but they were also two friends who spent their careers in front of audiences uh, bearing the internal contents of their souls. Yeah, and so they they always knew that the audience was on the other side and of the Brendan, microphones. His editor is very very oh. good. See, he's so good that you don't even notice. A balancing act. That there, Yeah, I think he does play into that. But I think yeah. there's also someone, Mark, as an interviewer working on his craft. I mean, because he's done like seven, eight hundred of them now sure. or something like that. Um, right. So, but bringing this back, mm-hmm. the, the whole point is thinking about audience then, right? Is that I wonder if sometimes and people- starting a podcast. People think about the sort of who's it for. They're, they're worried about being exclusionary. And that's not the point. The point is about having focus, right? The point is 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 not about excluding anyone from your podcast, right? It's about saying, well, but if these particular audience needs to seems to need to be served or could be served by what I do, well then I should serve them. And not and, and I hope that people who are new to community radio or just sort of kind of curious about radio and podcasting would listen to our show and be able to find it something that they could get into and get something out of, right? We walk that line between being didactic sometimes and sometimes taking for granted that people understand or know things. And I think it's always a line you walk and you make judicious choices because if you're too didactic, then you're making community radio for dummies and that's only interesting to dummies. Um, You know, but we also want to make sure that we're not – that this isn't impenetrable, that we're all of a sudden using jargon that makes no sense to anybody. Because yeah. I've talked about listening to like a radio engineering podcast that I thought I'd be interested in, but I after a while got completely lost. And I know a little bit. Your stereo equipment podcast? <laughs> no, no, not that. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's – I think I think that's it, and and so starting that right is the, when you think about it. What what would what would make some what would make a a listener I can imagine, and you should you should think of this think of these people think of them as people right as archetypes, but also as people. You know you know what what would what would like Dwayne want to listen to? What would Mary want to listen to? Yeah. Um, and think about it from that standpoint, right. Why would they want if this person is engaged in this particular activity or or has great interest in this in this field? Why? What would they want to know? What would make them want to listen? What would yeah. what would draw them in? What would they get out of listening to the show? And then and you lead with that. And yes, it doesn't mean 
you don't aspire that perhaps it grows into something which has more general um, sort of appeal. But it's very hard to start there. It's a very, very difficult place to start. It's a very difficult place, I would say, to start with media in general, period. But to start there with podcasting is all the more difficult place to start. You kind of have to – it's, you have to work at WNYC to start a podcast on and, that. And yet, if you look at WNYC's note. podcast output these days, they are not shows for everyone. One of their most popular shows right now is Two Dope Queens. It's a new show they debate this year. No one's unwelcome. Right. No one is unwelcome. But there's no – there's they're not at all apologetic about the fact that the show is hosted by two African-American women – who I think are thinking about African-American women in particular as being in their audience. Uh, white guys are welcome to listen, but it is not necessarily for you, yeah. but you are welcome to listen. And I think, you know, I think that that's, that's a great example right, right there. Or another very popular podcast called The Read, which is hosted by, uh, by two gay young black folks. Um, it's not, or it's not aimed at me as, right. as, as a middle-aged white guy, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, sort of cisgendered and, 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 and heterosexual, but there's, I, I listen to it and I learn things and it's entertaining and it's fun and I can understand why people really like it. My, my favorite part about listening to the read is that, um, in my, in the choices that I have made, uh, and the way that I was raised, I uh, do not have the opportunity to be friends with very many queer people of color, right? Uh, Portland slash et cetera. And to get to be in the room, to get to be a fly on the wall when two very good friends who are queer people of color have a very personal, engaging and amusing conversation about the things that they care about and uh, to be allowed to be welcome to eavesdrop on their conversation so that now, uh, despite, despite the lack of uh, queer people of color in my personal life, I now am welcome to at least know what's on the minds of two very intelligent people uh, who are nothing uh, like me as far as that goes. Uh, yeah. such a, it's such a privilege. Look at the iTunes top charts. And I think as you go through, you're going to see very few shows where you say specifically the conceit is that they are for everyone, meaning it's this it, American it, life. It, uh, yeah. Serial. I'm, I'll argue on a serial one. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I can argue that one. It's a show. I mean, it's a true crime show. That's not yeah. for everybody. Not everybody cares. Sure. There's a little bit of a social justice angle to it. This American life. Okay. First of all, not a podcast. Yeah, a very highly produced, a syndicated, millions and millions of radio dollars. show that has been in production for twenty years that found that it had, in some ways, found its audience more so through podcasting rather. I wonder what the budget is for one air. episode of This American a, Life. A lot more money than than you or I make in a year. So what's the what's the top uh, podcast that's just uh, two people talking into microphones? Um, I'm going to pull up. Let, let's look at this right now. So yeah, top yeah, yeah. podcasts. Um, so just two people talking. Probably it changes week by week. It changes week by week, and of course, it doesn't only reflect downloads. Um, but probably number nine, my favorite murder, which is 
each episode, the two hosts tell each other their favorite tales of murder and hear hometown crime stories from friend, friends and fans. Who are the hosts? Uh, Karen Kilgariff right. and Georgia Hardstock. The Feral Hardstock. Audio uh, yep. podcast. But that is essentially two people talking, number seven on the charts. Two professional stand-up comedians, comedians. talking. Well, there fine. You uh, however you hone your craft. Um, so I, I'm going to say, so if we remove the shows that really start as radio shows and are not podcasts mm-hmm. per se, I think there's very few here where you say they are for everyone. They may be accessible to everyone. They may sort of uh, appeal to a general audience more than others, but I think there's very few here because I think even if you take like Freakonomics Radio, that's not for everyone. Right. Let, let's just be really honest. If this were a prime time uh, network television show, it would get canceled. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would be popular enough to compete with NCIS or the Big Bang Theory. Oh, right? popular. So, right? So, you know, I think that that's a great way to check it. And that's the, the thing is that just because you don't make it for everyone doesn't mean everyone won't like it. Yeah. Well, I want to thank my friend uh, who who – uh, who 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 lit this fire in my mind? Because I'm still unsure if I've given him uh, perfect advice or, well, or halfway no decent advice. advice. The advice is go do it. Well, that was that's mostly been and, my advice. And, and even if even if you never release it, even if do it and then have yeah. other people listen to it, and it can be privately, just share Dropbox file, yeah, on a thumb drive, whatever. You don't have to publish it. Start with you sitting down. Two microphones. You could even use one if you know how to hold it and have a conversation with the person that you are interested in having a conversation with and record that. And that is uh, that is where you need to start no matter what when you're planning yeah. on making a radio or Just a podcast. Just note, there are very few shows that sound like This American Life for a reason. Millions of dollars. It's great to aspire to. It's great to have those standards. On the media. I like on the media. So well, which okay. doesn't sound like This American Life. But it's also extremely highly produced. It's they highly work, produced, but it's, it's, two, it's full-time. It's a staff of full-time workers yeah. working all week oh, long. Oh, and it's a great show, but it's hour. much more of a magazine format, interviews and such. Magazine. That's the word yeah, I've yeah, been exactly. searching for. You know, but I think it's, it's important to understand that and to aspire to that and maybe want to move forward to that. But also understand that if that's what you aspire to, there's no reason you can't also make a podcast which is just five or ten minutes a la Roman Mars, a la 99% Invisible, rather than saying I have to produce a full hour every week, maybe you can can make a great three to seven minutes that meets your your aspirations, right? And so it doesn't have to be the full magazine format and you can break it up bit by bit and release a week by week. There's a lot of opportunities to experiment here. I completely forgot that option. Yeah, a lot of opportunities. You can work all week long to make something that's seven minutes and that's that's the same amount of hours of work as a – as an hour long show that you've done a bunch of internal edits on. Right. I mean, it, it, there's so many approaches. I'm glad here. we had this talk. And I think, you know, the key is to, to give it a shot. If you don't want to publish it to the world, publish it to some friends. And I say publish it to the world. The world's not paying attention anyway. If you're worried about what they're going to think, <laughs> publish <laughs> like, it to the world because only your friends are going to download and, it. And you can always delete it later. Yeah. If you're like, Oh, I'm embarrassed by that. You know, unless you're going to run for office. Unless you're a racist. Yeah, unless, unless you're unless, Mark unless, Furman. Unless your podcast is about 
racism. <laughs> and you're and you're the racist. Yeah. <laughs> um, really, don't worry about it. You know, I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll just say this anecdote. And we'll leave it at this. He said, when you and I started, okay, and we first started talking about doing a Radio Survivor podcast mm-hmm. about a year before anything ever got released. Eric and Paul get coffee. Um, you know, I in my dreams, it was this was more of this like a polished kind of magazine format. Show. Yeah, I wanted to do I wanted to do documentary segments that mm-hmm. were. That were basically, you know, free speech radio news and for public radio. It was like a year after us talking for the first time. We sat down and I looked at you and I said, this isn't happening. Is yeah, it? we didn't do that work. We didn't do this, did we? We dreamed it though. And 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 you were, you were, you were, you, were so, you know, we were both on the same page. You're like, no. I said, so I think I really want this to happen, but I think we need to think about what can happen. So what do you think of this, Eric? I said, when, when's the next time that you're available to come over to my house? I have two microphones and we can record. I like, like what, what, you know, and maybe we can get a guest and you, and you went ahead and you got us our first guest, um, uh, Cheyenne Holman at the, uh, free music archive. And you did the interview yourself with her. So set up my home studio, set up your home, gave you an excuse to set that up. Right. So it was just like, what do we need to do to just get that first hour out? And, you know, and the question, and I don't know, I mean, if we spent, I mean, honestly, I'm not sure if we spent three times, four times, five times the amount of hours on it that we would have any more listeners than we do. Um, I mean, maybe we would. Maybe and, – and, and, and believe me, if if you, listener, thinks we would, send us an email, podcast at com. We don't want to fight with you. We just want to know what you think. I'm open to these things. But I think, that, right, it's the appropriate approach for what you're trying to accomplish, right? And you should know beyond not just the audience – you should know what you want to accomplish. Why are you doing it? And one re- great reason to do it is I want to express myself. I want to make something that is like art or that is art. I want to make something yeah. amazing. Th- that is a perfectly good reason to do it. So do it I think that and the- move forward. Uh, and then you can worry about all the other people later. I think that my friend uh, who I want to thank again for, for – uh- are you going to are you going to play this for him? I well I'm going to ask him to listen to it. I don't know if he'll take that time. But I think that what was what was uh, animating him as far as dreaming about podcasting was that he has devoted his life to a certain field of study and now a certain job yeah. that matters to him and he knows he knows as well as he knows anything that uh, not everyone is approaching the work in the right way in the way that he has learned the best that he knows. And so now he wants to um, spread, spread those lessons. And I think simply doing it as a podcast in and of itself is such a great step forward. Um, it's better than keeping the ideas stuck in your head. It's better than keeping the ideas stuck in your head. Exactly. That's exactly it. I think that is that is it in a nutshell, right there. But, so, but you do uh, have to start. You can't you can't let your gigantic you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Isn't that that's right. My dad keeps telling me. Yeah, and uh, it's the lesson I, I and it doesn't mean that you don't eventually get really good. Uh, I think Ira Glass himself of This American Life has has talked again and again and again about his own process of learning uh, to do radio and going from. Uh, from going from like good enough to very good, 
to excellent, right? That it is a path, but it started with him doing some radio that maybe wasn't so good to start with. Um, so if you've never done it before, just do it. Please, yeah, yeah. just do it. If you, What do you think? We'd love to hear from you. Uh, send us your remarks as an audio file. You just do it. Just use your uh, voice app on the... Uh, on the on your phone and just email it to us podcast at realsurvivor.com we'd love to know what you think about the show we'd love to open up these lines of communication and maybe uh, you have some other advice or you know about some other advice that we ought to share here on the show thanks to Jim Ellinger for taking some time to talk with Eric this week and thank you Eric for uh, for everything you do thank yep. you to everyone you especially listening to us right now we really appreciate you spending a little bit of your time this week. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a good week, everybody. <laughs>